You are listening to Killer, and this is case number 22, The Great Branks Robbery. Lock your doors, bolt your windows, and turn off the lights. We're about to begin. It was just before 7.30 p.m. on the evening of January 17, 1950. A group of armed and masked men entered a building located at 165 Prince Street in Boston, Massachusetts. Not long after entering, the group of men left carrying bags of cash containing 1.2 million and another group of bags containing 1.5 million dollars in checks, money orders, and securities, totaling 2.775 million dollars. At the time, this was the largest heist in American history. In today's dollars, this would be a theft of nearly $29 million and was considered the crime of the century. At 7.27 p.m., the crew of 11 men sped away in their getaway car. Brinks employees phoned the Boston police, who arrived moments later. The police began interviewing the Brinks employees to try to determine what had just happened. What they found were few details, except that there were roughly five to seven men who entered the building wearing navy-type peacoats, gloves, and chauffeur's hats. Each robber also wore a mask. The robbery took place swiftly and with great precision. The crew had mysteriously unlocked at least three, possibly four different doors to gain entrance to the second floor of Brinks. This was where the Brinks employees would perform their task of checking and storing the money collected from Brinks customers during the day. The crew that entered the building did little talking and forced the five employees to the floor at gunpoint and were instructed to lie face down. Their hands were bound behind their backs and their mouths were taped shut. As the robbery was unfolding, the robbers began stacking bags in between the second and third doors leading to the Prince Street entrance. A buzzer began going off and at least one crew member removed the tape on an employee's mouth to ask them what was going on. They were informed it was someone wanting to be let into the vault. As two of the robbers approached the doorway, the person ringing the buzzer, a garage attendant, had walked away, seemingly unaware of the robbery in progress. At the crime scene, police were able to get a few pieces of physical evidence. They found a rope and adhesive tape used to bind and gag the employees. They also found one of the chauffeur's hats. The FBI also found out that the gang that had robbed the Brinks vault had also taken four revolvers. Investigators were able to get the description and serial numbers of the weapons just in case they'd be relevant later. Word began to spread around Boston in the aftermath of the crime. Police began interrogating well-known local criminals to see what they could find. It even spread to other areas throughout the United States. Police tried tracking down anyone in the heavily populated tenement area. An extensive investigation into the Brinks employees past and present was performed, as well as anyone that had worked in the three-story building and or had something to do with the Brinks' day-to-day business like messengers, salesmen, and the like. The robbery instantly made front-page news. It was plastered everywhere and hundreds of leads led nowhere. Brinks offered a $100,000 reward for information leading to the arrest and conviction of the persons responsible. Several false leads began to come in through the notoriety of the case. An interesting note was that the loot may be concealed in the Atlantic Ocean near Boston. Officials performed a detailed survey, but nothing of interest came about. Former inmates began lending tips to authorities claiming to have heard of plans by other inmates while they were incarcerated. All of these leads were followed up on, but nothing checked out. 
a person of interest, was developed shortly after the heist. A man living in Bayonne, New Jersey, began suddenly spending large sums of money in nightclubs, buying new cars, and living a lot more extravagantly than his means would seemingly allow. Authorities investigated the man and his alibi for the night of January 17, 1950, and it checked out. Another false lead. The criminal underground started being scrutinized heavily following the heist. Gangs such as the Purple Gang of the 1930s began receiving a lot of extra attention. A second gang known for hijacking bootlegged whiskey during the Prohibition era in Boston was also under the microscope. Just like before, the police were now crossing more names off the list rather than finding solid leads. The tips continued to pour in, even two years later, on January 17, 1952, the FBI in Boston received an anonymous tip from an individual claiming that he was sending a letter which would identify the Brinks robbers. The letter arrived and contained nine names. The FBI was able to fully eliminate eight of the nine names, however, they still had one, who was already a person of interest that they still couldn't quite eliminate. This was, at the time, the crime of the century. I had never heard of this case before and I found it extremely fascinating. What do you make of the details so far uh, based on like the, the way that the robbers moved about and you know broke in and, and performed the heist? It's very calculated by the sounds of it, for sure. They all had you know matching outfits, wore masks, unlocked at least three, possibly four different doors to gain entrance to the second floor of the Brinks. I don't know if they had keys or... I mean, obviously, they would have been keys in the 50s. There's no such thing as access cards or you're swiping a badge to get in. But kind of with just that early information, it sounds like it could have been an inside job of sorts. Yeah. And, you know, another thing that I thought was pretty interesting, and you mentioned it a little bit, was how they dressed. So they wore like the exact uniforms that a Brinks employee would wear so they wouldn't seem suspicious as they were, you know, entering the building right and so you know passers-by wouldn't really think twice about the people you know and what they were doing and then they also had halloween masks on which was kind of interesting um i've seen some pictures and the masks look like the masks are like just people like just kind of like a person's face but i don't know if that's the actual mask that they wore or just an example photo like kind of like a stock image that they supplied with some of the articles that you know just kept getting passed around so you know, it kind of looked like olive oil from Popeye or something like that, just to give you a, a visual on it. And, you know, it was, it was really well thought out, you know, and it also reminds me a lot of the opening sequence of Batman, the Dark Knight, uh, the, the one with the Joker, for those of you who don't know, where they start out with the robbery scene. And it just seems like so calculated and so well planned out and everything just kind of, you know, going like do, 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 do. And then it's done. Right. You know, that's what that, that's the vibe I got from this. Yeah, sound, it sounds very similar, other than the fact that they don't have one guy killing everybody and escaping in a school bus with all the money to himself. <laughs> yeah, and dressing like a clown and... <laughs> with clown makeup on underneath the clown mask. You know, I got these scars. <laughs> Sorry, I have a terrible Joker impression. No, that's fine. But I will, I will say that that was probably my personal opinion, the best Batman movie that there was in all of the series. So I'm sure that'll draw some hate, but you're not a Batfleck guy. No, <laughs> no. <laughs> Speaking of Boston. Yeah. No kidding. Yeah. I'm not a, I'm not a fan of uh, Ben Affleck and his Batman, but yeah, I, I would agree. Um, I don't know for me. It's like one, a one B Batman returns, Michael Keaton, 
or The Dark Knight with Christian Bale. They're kind of that 1A, 1B right there for me. I, I love them both. Like when I was a little kid, I was pretty young when, the, when Batman Returns came out. I was probably five or six. And that was like when I was like super into Batman. So that movie with me like has like a sentimental thing. Right. Not You're not a George Clooney fan either? Well, I do love nipples on my bat suit, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I forgot about that. Thank you for reminding me. <laughs> it was so hot. <laughs> we. T-H-O. <laughs> T-M-I. <laughs> yeah. But, but back to this robbery, I... That was a pretty significant reward that Brinks offered for information leading to the arrest. $100,000 in 1950 is not chump change. I mean, granted, these guys stole a shit ton of money, but $100,000 reward is that. I'm surprised there wasn't more significant leads coming in like right now. Yeah. And I mean, so they stole a million and a half in cash and then like two and three quarters in total, you know, including another million and a half in securities. So, I mean, they almost had $3 million worth of stuff that they, you know, took from that vault. And, I mean, you got to just think, too, like, how much stuff did they have to take out of there? Like, how how many bags or sacks of money and coins is $3 million? You know, like, where do you put it? That is a lot. <laughs> a lot. I mean, depending on the denomination and how it was split up, that's a lot of money. I mean, if you're... That's what I'm saying. This is a holding place for Brinks to to stash, you know, pickups from their customers. You know, it's not bundled hundred dollar bills. Yeah, the load. exactly. <laughs> yeah, and so it's just it's a, uh, you know, it's crazy to think about. Like, what what does that even look like? You know, how how much is it? Like, how would you even know as like a a robber? Like, how much would you? How would you even know? Like, how much that you know that is to take out and carry with you? Like, how would you plan? what you were going to do with it and, you know, what kind of vehicle you needed. Obviously, you're probably going to get a truck or something anyway because you're just assuming that it's a lot. But who really knows? Do you really know what a sack of, you know, a million dollars looks like? Because I don't. Is it like five bags of it? Like, how's it stored in the vault? Yeah, I have no idea. They obviously brought something with them to to stash it. I don't think that... Oh, you see these guys picking up stuff today, and I'm sure that they were similar Back even then the 50s, it's like a satchel type thing where they're picking up cash, like cash deposits from businesses or whatever. But yep. I'm sure they're not carrying a shitload of those out because they'd have had to make multiple trips to whatever vehicle they're taking this money out in. Yeah, yep. But if it, Definitely. But if it was a calculated robbery, I don't know if they went to the trouble of trying to determine taking a stack of cash, weighing it, and then trying to figure out what they needed to move that much cash or did they know how much that there was going to be in that spot at that one time? Did they know what to bring with them to carry it? Yeah, it's uh it's a great question, you know, as we start unpacking some of the details of what happens during this uh this heist. On February 4th, 1950, a rusty revolver had been found by a group of boys playing on a sandbar at the edge of Mystic River in Somerville, Massachusetts. On February 5th, 1950, a police officer from Somerville recovered a revolver that had been taken by one of the robbers. A search was done along the Mystic River. However, no further evidence was found. Police were also able to obtain a description of the getaway vehicle from locals who were in the area at the time and subsequently interviewed. The FBI believed that a 1949 green Ford stake body truck with a canvas top had been parked near the Prince Street entrance around the time of the robbery. 
Investigators believed this lead because it made perfect sense for a truck to be used based on the size of the loot. This lead was pursued extensively. On March 4, 1950, pieces of a truck matching the description of the green Ford were found at a dump in Stoughton, Mass. A torch had been used to cut up the truck, and a sledgehammer was also believed to have been used to smash the heavy parts, including the engine. The parts were concealed in fiber bags, and it is believed that if it had not been for the freezing temperatures, the pieces would have been buried. The truck found at the dump had been reported stolen by a Ford dealer near Fenway Park in Boston on November 3, 1949. Investigators were unable to unravel the clues as to who was responsible for the theft and dismemberment of the vehicle. Police began searching for any clues, including the fiber bags that were used to conceal the truck pieces. They were able to determine these bags were from a beef bone shipment from South America to a gelatin manufacturer in Massachusetts. No further information ever came from this evidence. One thing police were able to do was begin to narrow down their list of suspects due to the location of the truck pieces. Two of the gang members involved in the heist lived in Staunton, Massachusetts, which is where the truck pieces were located. Additional interest was then focused on these men. I found it interesting that they cut up this truck and hid it, you know, in a dump, but like left a lot of it around. And I I thought that was kind of strange. I wasn't sure, you know, how much of the truck they had to cut up and why they chose not to just disperse the pieces, you know, maybe randomly throughout a few different locations. Yeah, that was my thought, too. Why would they have left all the pieces in one spot? If they were really wanting to cover their tracks, they should have, like you said, dispersed it to some different salvage yards or whatever. And that's a lot of work to cut up a truck. I mean, I mean, obviously, they lifted nearly $3 million, and with six guys at that point in time in 1950, that's plenty of money to retire on, especially if they don't get caught. So they got all kinds of time to be cutting up vehicles. Yeah, and it's just crazy in a way like they go through all this work and effort and then leave this truck and you know a few shambles around this uh dump site and it it was kind of a little weird to me you know like they should have dispersed it amongst a few different places because you know leaving it in one spot is you know you can if it's not something you can destroy all the way then something that could be possibly put back together and, and pieced together as evidence towards against you, you know? Right. I found it interesting that they used fiber bags to put the pieces in. That To me, that would kind of stick out in a salvage yard because usually you just see junk cars smashed and stacked up on one another. And then all of a sudden you come across the section of a scrap yard where you see stuff in these similar fiber bags. I thought that was kind of weird. I don't know what the point of that was. I'm guessing they were going to bury it, like like it said, and it was, you know, just too hard in the ground and they couldn't dig and bury. I would assume that was their plan, and when it didn't go accordingly, they figured, that's a salvage yard, nobody's going to come looking here. Right. Just took their chances. I mean, a good investigation work, though, for them to be able to trace where the bags came from. Yeah, that was incredible. Um, I was pretty surprised that they were able to glean that kind of information. I wonder if it was one of those things where I, I've seen commodities, like different types of commodities come in what they what they call like a fibrous bag, but it's almost like a burlap sack and it will be stamped from where it was processed, you know, what location or what, especially if it's an international shipment, what country it came from and stuff like that. So I'm wondering if it wasn't something like that. It said it was from beef bone. I have no idea what they would be doing with a beef bone shipment to a gelatin manufacturer. I don't want to know. 
but uh, well, that's what gelatin's made from. That's what gelatin's made from. Oh, from bones. Okay. Yeah. Today I they, learned they process. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man, gelatin's uh, it's really good for you. I take a gelatin supplement actually. Like I uh, use a there's a collagen peptides. It's you know there's beef gelatin and then collagen peptides, which I don't know exactly what the difference is, but there's some kind of difference between the two. Anyway, you just make a little homemade protein shake with some beef gelatin instead of putting that garbage uh, whey protein junk that's just a bunch of crap that no one even knows what's in it. You know, instead of using that stuff, you just get a little scoop of this beef gelatin. You're good to go. doesn't even taste like anything. Interesting. Oh, it has to taste better than that. Uh, I don't even know if I would call it gelatin, but I think at one time you were eating like a fish jelly type of stuff. Fish jelly. What oh, the hell? No. Fish oil jelly or no, something no. crazy like that. <laughs> that was kippers, dude. Uh, you know. Yeah. Kipper, kippered herring in a in a can, you know, it's all smoked and packed in there. And then just in the office, you just rip that thing open and you just piss everyone off in an entire floor. And then you get your vice president to come down and start screaming about who left this fish smell in the trash can. Hey, the single greatest work experience I've ever had was when I came in from lunch or may, it might've been from walking from another building. And I, I entered that lower level and the entire floor just smelt like Bigfoot's dick. <laughs> It was awful. <laughs> oh, man. It was so embarrassing, too, because I don't know how, but I didn't really think it smelled all that bad. Like, not like uh, knock your whole floor into oblivion smell. It just it had a fish smell, but I didn't think it made it maybe, you know, two to three cubicles away from me, maybe. But, man, it took out an entire like floor of a pretty large building. <laughs> yeah. I think it was the trash can you chose and the wind draft when they, people would open the doors, it was just a natural draft of the wind going through the hallway and sucking it into that area. That was my F you to management in a very backhanded way where they couldn't possibly think that I was doing something to be mean. I was just getting my protein in for the day by eating my fish. Yeah. Between you sitting behind me with the kipper smell and the guy in front of me that was the, crossfit maniac that drank protein shakes and would fart all day long and just absolutely blast me out of oblivion another reason for the gelatin dude doesn't make you fart man should have brought him some (laughs) beef gelatin then because that was awful (laughs) oh man we're getting we're getting way sidetracked here we better rein it back in (laughs) it was relative to the story though because i had no idea that what beef bone gelatin was so yeah, you got from gelatin to protein farts to kippers back to gelatin back to uh, back to the topic at hand. Authorities had their suspicions of who may have been involved in the heist based on the reputations of a few of the local criminals. One of the men they were interested in was Anthony Pino. Pino was an alien who had a long rap sheet. Pino was a professional safe cracker. By the time he was 30, he had been arrested 25 times. He was a petty criminal who would shoplift and commit minor robberies. Considered to be the mastermind of the entire operation, Pino was said to have hatched his plan to rob Brinks after passing by the Brinks North Terminal Garage one night, and he saw employees loading endless bags of cash into an armored car. As the crew began their planning leading up to the heist, as mentioned earlier, they had stolen keys from the company garage. They also followed Brinks trucks around town and learned the ins and outs of all of their routes, even opening unguarded cars and stealing a sack of money and taking off. 
They also robbed the safe deposit boxes of Brink's customers. They would use a security company's delivery schedule to determine when the customer had the most money in their safes. It is reported that they made off with almost $400,000 from Brinks and their customers from 1946 to 1950. The plot also included Joseph, Big Joe McGinnis, Stanley, Gus, Casario, and Joseph Specs O'Keefe, amongst others. In the last two years leading up to the heist, members of the gang broke into the Brinks offices on several occasions in order to research ahead of the heist. They would glean details from the company's operations, schedules, and even their alarm system, which they found to be quite minimal except for the vault. Once they discovered the vault alarm may give them trouble, they decided it would be an armed robbery while the vault was open. Specs and Gus entered the Brinks depot and picked the outside lock with an ice pick and a piece of plastic. Later, they temporarily removed the cylinders from the five locks one at a time so that a locksmith could make duplicate keys for them. From this point, Pino recruited seven other men to help in the heist, bringing the total involved up to 11. The gang prepared for their heist by studying the schedules of the staff, watching the windows for when the lights would turn on and off. Specs and Gus were even able to steal the plans for the alarm system and later return them undetected. When the staff would leave for the day, the gang would do dry runs. Pino's brother-in-law, Vincent Costa, would watch from the depot from the tenement building across the street from the Brinks building. The gang practiced their heist for two years prior to executing it, including six aborted attempts. The gang also had another sophisticated plan. Once the heist was complete, they were going to divide a small amount of the loot amongst the 11 of them, but then they would sit on the rest of the loot for six years after the statute of limitations would run out. During the execution of the heist, Pino and another gang member by the name of Joseph Banfield waited in the getaway car. This plan was super elaborate and very well researched and rehearsed, and you were alluding to this earlier, and I obviously didn't want to talk about this too much knowing we were going to cover the rest of that. And man, was I impressed by the level of detail that these guys went to in order to pull this off. Yeah, two years of planning that included six aborted attempts. I mean, that's that's just crazy. And 11 guys to, to help with this robbery, uh, you know, pulling the cylinders and making keys. That's just a crazy amount of work. Yeah, and what else was really interesting is after you know, reading through that now and having our discussion earlier, they must have seen what at least had an idea of what sacks of cash looked like just watching the guys load and unload money in and out of these trucks. Right. And the vault, yeah, like we alluded to earlier, how did they know what volume of cash they were going to be dealing with and how to handle it and get it out of there once they were in and ready to, to start loading it up? Yeah. And I mean, I guess in a sense they could have not really planned that part out as well and just taken whatever they could have fit and then took off. You know, maybe they didn't really, I guess, need to know that part, but you would kind of want to know it. Right. And and speaking of bundles of cash, it got me thinking there was, I've always wondered, we talk about the minimal level of security and you, you see armored trucks today and they always have two drivers. They, well, they have two operators. They have a driver and then they have a guy running shotgun in the back that's they're completely isolated from each other in case something was to happen that that one could respond. Depending on the situation, if somebody attacks the driver, the person that's in the back can defend him. It's like a fortified thing. There's slots on the side of the car where they can stick a gun out and shoot at you from inside the truck. But the minimal security thing kind of reminded me of a one time, I don't remember how long ago this was, but I was at one of my local bank branches that I do business with. and I was 
it was weird because they didn't have a front entrance. You had to pull around to the back, but that's where also the armored truck would pull in. And one day I got there just when they first opened and the armored truck was there and they must've been stocking up cash in the safe at the bank. And I was just in awe of the amount of cash that they were carrying. And they just had a furniture dolly and this cash was actually boxed up and labeled by what denomination it was. There there had to be, I, I would say each layer of $100 bills on that skid or that pallet that he was bringing in was probably $100,000. He had close to a half million dollars that he wheeled in on a furniture dolly. Just oh do-do-do-do-do, wheeling it in the back door like it was nothing. Somebody could have jumped out of the shrubs and popped him right there. And what's the driver going to do? He's <laughs> sitting there with his back turned, for Christ's sakes. Yeah, no kidding. Not that I'm advocating somebody to go lift up an armored truck, but it, to me it just seemed like it would be too easy if you were that type of person in that mindset well I'm going to rob this guy he had literally probably half a million dollars in cash on that skid that he was wheeling in I was like holy shit the only other time I've ever seen that much money in one place at one time was there was a casino in Canada where you could see through a there was a window from the cash counter back to the counting room I think that's so some of the security at the casino could see back there but there was there was cash on tables at this casino that stood higher than people's heads off the table all the way around. They were bundling <laughs> and bagging it up to send it out. It was insane. Oh, send it my way. Yeah, no shit. <laughs> Police were also interested in Big Joe McGinnis. He was a figure in the Boston underworld whose alibi stated he was with Pino that night. In fact, according to Pino's alibi, he stated that he was at home in the Roxbury section of Boston that night until 7 p.m. Then he walked to a nearby liquor store owned by Big Joe. He spoke to Joe as well as a Boston police officer that night. However, his story had a little tiny hole. While it was entirely true, the timing of him arriving at the liquor store around 7.30 p.m. could have been after having participated in the robbery still. This placed Joe and Pino together and possibly involved. Joe had also been convicted of robbery and narcotics violations in the past. Sources in the Boston underworld informed investigators that Joe was plenty capable of planning that type of heist. His timing and meeting up with Pino at the liquor store just seemed too convenient to police. They were also interested in Joseph O'Keefe as well as Stale Gascoria. They were both local ex-cons who knew Pino and had a reputation for being able to handle guns. They also had weak alibis and had family near the discovered truck. O'Keefe had an alibi consisting of leaving a hotel room at 7 p.m. the night of the robbery. Gascoria claimed that he was out drinking that evening. Investigators began searching the homes of, the, of Gus and O'Keefe. Nothing was found to implicate them in the heist. In April of 1950, the FBI did receive information stating that a relative of O'Keefe was housing the loot. A federal search warrant was obtained and executed on April 27th. Investigators uncovered several hundred dollars hidden inside, but they could not pinpoint the money back to the Brinks heist. On June 2, 1950, Gus and O'Keefe left Boston to allegedly visit the grave of Gus's brother in Missouri. On June 12, 1950, the pair were arrested in Tawanda, Pennsylvania, where officers found guns and clothing that were the loot from burglaries in Kane and Cuttersport, Pennsylvania, which were in their possession. O'Keefe and Gus's legal teams tried to get their release on bail, but they were unsuccessful. On September 8, 1950, O'Keefe was sentenced to three years in the Bradford County Jail and fined $3,000 for violation of the Uniform Firearms Act. Gus was acquitted of those charges in Tawanda. However, he was sent to McKean County, Pennsylvania, where he stood trial for burglary, larceny, and receiving stolen goods. 
On October 11, 1950, he was sentenced to serve 5 to 20 years in the Western Pennsylvania Penitentiary at Pittsburgh. From 1950 to 1954, there were rumblings from the underworld that Pino, McGinnis, Adolf Maffey, O'Keefe, and Henry Baker were involved in the big job. Authorities believed O'Keefe was a central figure in the heist and that Pino was involved too. They also had a feeling that Pino was turning his back on O'Keefe since he was incarcerated. Police thought they might be able to drive a wedge between those locked up, O'Keefe and Gascaria, and those on the outside like Pino and McGinnis. However, that didn't work as planned as O'Keefe and Gascario had no respect for law enforcement. The pair in jail were questioned many times regarding the Brinks case and claimed ignorance. On the outside, pressure was mounting for many of the still-free criminals like Adolf, Jazz, Maffey. They were being pressured to contribute money to the legal battles of O'Keefe and Gascaria. Maffey had no alibi for the night of the robbery, and police were suspicious of him, as well as Henry Baker, another veteran criminal. He was also being rumored as contributing to the defense fund. Baker was in prison much of his adult life and was released just five months before the robbery took place. The man who drove him back to Boston on his release won Anthony Pino. Baker claimed during a police interview he had eaten dinner with his family on the night of the robbery and left home around 7 p.m. to walk around the neighborhood for about two hours. He never claimed to have met with anyone, which meant he could have been doing anything during those two hours. Vincent Costa, Pino's brother-in-law, was also questioned. He had a previous conviction for armed robbery in 1940 and served several months in Massachusetts State Reformatory and the Norfolk, Massachusetts prison colony. Costa was associated with Pino as operators of a motor terminal and lottery in Boston. He told police he left there at 5 p.m., went home to eat, and returned to their work from 7 to 9 p.m. So what you'll note there between most of those who are suspected of being involved is their alibis all start around 7 p.m. They always have a very interesting thing that they're doing between 7 and 7 and 9, you know, right around then. You know, they're suddenly busy or, you know, they have something very important going on. And authorities are noticing this, right? They're looking at all the details and they're going, okay, uh, you know, we suspect X, Y, and Z person. And they all seem to have something going on right around the time that this robbery went down, which is awfully convenient. Right. Yeah. Awfully convenient is an understatement. Yeah. That was glaring as we read through those descriptions and alibis. Yeah. I mean, obviously, it's really hard to pinpoint, you know what was going on, but just kind of makes you a little more suspicious than it does not. Right. So another interesting thing that happens here is a grand jury, they meet on November 25th, 1952. So we're kind of jumping back and forth in time just a little bit. And they're concerning the FBI's jurisdiction of investigation due to the cash checks, postal notes, and the money orders. And the hearing ends up, you know, wrapping up on January 9th, 1953. And the jury dis- uh, disclosed that its members did not feel that they possessed complete positive information as to the identity of the participants in the Brinks robbery because, one, the participants were effectively disguised, and two, there was a lack of eyewitnesses to the crime itself, and three, certain witnesses refused to give testimony, and the grand jury was unable to compel them to do so. So, you know, here they're kind of wishy washy on what the FBI can do going forward um and they're kind of saying you know there's really not much we don't have any info so you know what are we going to do with this so that was kind of interesting yeah it's kind of hard to do anything when you don't have the the cash or the money orders or any of that stuff to to back it up either yeah they left you no evidence no loot and no witnesses and they were completely disguised so right i mean good luck right 
I wonder if investigators, uh, I was reading through it so fast, sorry if I, I don't recall which, which pair went, didn't two of them go to Missouri for one of their brother's funerals or something like that? Yeah, that was O'Keefe and Gus. Yeah. They claimed to have left to go to Missouri for a funeral. Nobody knows if they really went. It was actually not for a funeral. It was to visit a grave. Right. Um, and nobody knows if they actually went there. Uh, they they claim they did, but they managed to bust a few robberies out in Pennsylvania while <laughs> while they were gone. And when they said they were going to visit a grave, I, to me, uh, crazy a story as this is, and that big of a heist, I wonder if they didn't bury the money in a grave. <laughs> Yeah, that would be a really good ploy, right? Yeah, that's some. That's I mean, I know that's some Scooby Doo level shit, but to me, that's <laughs> something I would think that you know, it's a legitimate spot. If they, if one of them had a family member or something had just recently been buried, do the old switcheroo and bury the cash. They said they were going to leave it for you know, a long time. Go back and dig it up later, right? Zoinks! <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man. Yeah. Who knows? Uh, that would have been a really good cover, though. Yeah, for sure. My criminal mastermind is starting to show. I need to, I need to keep it down, not give away all my, uh, all my uh, devious plans. <laughs> I might need to get a new uh, co-host, guys. I think Craig or Greg, is, uh, he, might, he might lose it soon. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm, I'm good. <laughs> no worries there. So the other interesting... Uh, thing that was going on through this time timeline of events here uh, leading up to the heist is so Pino we mentioned he was an alien so he was from Italy and he was facing deportation uh, because in 1941 you know he had run into some trouble and you know and some other things that he had done and he ended up in jail for a while and then got out of jail and he ended up fighting the deportation charges, and in 1949, the governor granted him a full pardon of one of the charges, I believe. And so the one that got wiped off of his record was the one that he was facing deportation for. So he ended up um, winning that, and he was able to stay. He also has a second battle with deportation for some other criminal activities, but they weren't able to pin it on him. I believe he gets like falsely charged, or charged and the charge gets dropped. But they continue the deportation process, but then they, you know, can't do it. So he ends up uh, retaining his citizenship or his ability to stay in the country, I should say. So um, I thought that was kind of interesting. Yeah, it sounds like this guy is a professional at staying out of trouble. I don't know how else to say it. You know, he ends up getting a full pardon. I'm kind of curious as to what a governor would have seen to give him a full pardon. Usually it's kind of like what you already alluded to where they were lack of eyewitnesses or lack of any kind of evidence to fully prosecute them. Maybe that was it. I don't know. Yeah, I, there were some details on that. It's not terribly important to the way that this story rolls out. So, you know, I didn't go down that rabbit hole too far. There's already a ton of information on this case to go through. So I kind of stopped it there and was like, all right, you know, I have to stop myself. It was, <laughs> it was fascinating, but at the same time, you know, it's just something worth kind of noting as this is all going on leading up to the 1950 robbery. You know, by 1949, he finally gets the ability to stay here. And had he been deported, this doesn't happen. Sure. During the period in which Pino's deportation troubles were mounting, O'Keefe completed his sentence at Tawanda, Pennsylvania. He was released to McKean County authorities early in January of 1954 to stand trial for burglary, larceny, and receiving stolen goods. O'Keefe was also confronted with a detainer filed by the Massachusetts authorities. 
The detainer involved O'Keefe's violation of probation in connection with a conviction in 1945 for carrying a concealed weapon. Before his trial in McKean County, he was released on $17,000 bond. While on bond, he returned to Boston, and on January 23, 1954, he appeared in the Boston Municipal Court on the probation violation charge. When this case was continued until April 1, 1954, O'Keefe was released on $1,500 bond. During his brief stay in Boston, he was observed to contact other members of the robbery gang. He needed money for his defense against the charges in McKean County, and it was obvious that he had developed a bitter attitude towards a number of his close underworld associates. Returning to Pennsylvania in February of 1954 to stand trial, O'Keefe was found guilty of burglary by the state court in McKean County on March 4, 1954. An appeal was promptly noted, and he was released on $15,000 bond. O'Keefe immediately returned to Boston to await the results of the appeal. Within two months of his return, another member of the gang suffered a legal setback. Jazz Maffey was convicted of federal income tax evasion and began serving a nine-month sentence in the federal penitentiary at Danbury, Connecticut in June of 54. Dissension began to amount internally within the group. O'Keefe was rumored to have Maffey and Baker on a hit list. Baker soon left with his wife soon after O'Keefe's return in March of 1954. It was rumored that O'Keefe was hitting up members of the gang and looking for his share of the loot. At one point, O'Keefe allegedly held Vincent Costa, Pino's brother-in-law, hostage at a hotel demanding thousands in ransom money and was paid by other members of the Brinks gang. A small part of the ransom and Costa was released two days later. On June 5, 1954, an automobile pulled up alongside O'Keefe's car in Dorchester, Massachusetts. O'Keefe became nervous and slumped low in his car when a barrage of bullets pierced the windshield. On June 14th, a second attempt was made on O'Keefe's life when he and a friend paid a visit to Baker. Baker was apparently nervous and pulled a gun on O'Keefe, resulting in several shots being exchanged by both men, but none of them hit anyone and Baker fled. Two days later, on June 16th, O'Keefe had a third attempt on his life. The shooter fired over 30 shots and only managed to wound O'Keefe, hitting his wrist and chest. The following day, police arrested Elmer Trigger Burke and charged him with possession of a machine gun which was later identified as being the gun used to attempt to kill O'Keefe. O'Keefe disappeared for a while and resurfaced on August 1st when he was arrested in Leicester, Massachusetts and turned over to the Boston police for violating his probation on a gun-carrying charge. He was sentenced on August 5th to serve 27 months in prison. He was sent to the Hampton County Jail at Springfield, Mass., rather than the Suffolk County Jail in Boston. The gang is obviously you know, beginning to have some infighting going on, and they're starting to really, you know, get restless, it seems like. And O'Keefe is, you know, he's demanding that, you know, other members of the gang help him fund his legal defense with, you know, their share of the loot. And he feels like because he was incarcerated, he was getting, you know, left out of these payments or however they kept divvying up money. I'm not sure, but... He felt like he was getting screwed somehow. So he kept going back and back and, you know, it seemed like he was getting a bad attitude with with the group. And and so they put a hit out on him, it looks like. Yeah, and I I can only imagine that the hit was probably the result of the rest of the gang members thinking that he keeps getting arrested and they turn around and think that maybe he's going to, you know, he's going to roll over on them and then blow the whole thing. So they want to get him out of the picture as quick as they can. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty obvious that he seems to be like a loose cannon based on the way that this is all lining up. And they're definitely concerned that they may, you know, suffer because of this guy being unable to 
keep clean and and stay off, uh, you know, stay out of jail. Right. Sounds like to me they need to hire some better hitmen because they tried to kill this guy three times and only managed to hit him in the wrist and the chest on a third attempt <laughs> after 30 shots. So, yeah, I mean, how many bullets did they shoot at this guy? The second attempt wasn't necessarily a hit. It was really really two hits on him and one was just a brush up with one of the other gang members who was a little nervous being that he felt like uh O'Keefe was looking to do some damage to him. So he was kind of on the defensive when O'Keefe shows up at his place, he's like, "Hey, screw this, dude. I'm I'm going to I'm not messing around." So, I don't know, this guy's like 95 lives or something. <laughs> I mean, how many bullets had been shot at him in a like a two-week period. <laughs> yeah. He doesn't have nine lives when it comes to getting arrested, though. Seems like he's in and out of jail <laughs> quite often. Yeah, keeps him uh, keeps him healthy. <laughs> better, better in jail than on the streets, apparently. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, well, I don't know because th- there's so much going on within this gang and this dissension that's, you know, springing up. You know, it, it's really, they're they're pushing close to their six-year statute of limitations here you know they're getting closer and and police still are on the lookout you know they they still don't know who did this they have their suspicions but they still can't prove anything right it, that's an interesting comment if you reach a statute of limitations for say a bank robbery and then you hit that six-year mark what happens then i'm not like we've I've alluded to this on past episodes. I'm not very versed in the justice system and how laws and certain things work, but I'm assuming even after six years, you just don't unearth your $3 million and just start throwing a huge party and saying, eh, I got away with it, suckers. I, I still feel like there's something that's going to bad's going to come of that. I would imagine there has to be something that is still a charge that can be levied against this group and that they can be, you know, taken down with. I'm not sure. I mean, what do they do with the money? Was it, is it marked? Is it accounted for? Is it like unspendable? Like how did that, how did that work back then? I I don't know, you know, and I was thinking about that too. So you hit your six years and then can you even spend that cash? Like, what do you do with it? Yeah, I don't know. I I don't think it's, I don't know that they can take legal tender and if it was marked and they knew the marks from every single bill that they could deem it unusable. I I don't know how that works. Hopefully somebody listens to this can give us a little bit more insight because I I honestly have no idea. Yeah, exactly. If if you're a listener and you're a little bit more versed in the justice system than I am, please shoot us a message on our, our Instagram or our Facebook page at Killer Podcast and let us know. Because, quite frankly, Craig and I are dumbasses when it comes to the legal part of this equation. And, uh, you know, it'd be interesting to hear what can they do, what can't they do, like what kind of um, ins and outs are there with, you know, with relation to this. Yeah, for sure. I I hope, hopefully somebody can shed some light on it. We've had a lot of good feedback on some of our cases lately and people chiming in, giving personal experiences. So if anybody knows anything about that, for sure, let us know. And this is where we're going to leave off part one, and we'll pick up again next week when you get to find out what happened in the Great Brinks robbery. Stay safe.